Hello, I'm Reggie Yates, and welcome to The Road Less Travelled, an original podcast series brought to you by Bellstaff. It should be in the front of everyone's mind right now, especially if you're in our industry. It does annoy me and upset me when you read interviews and someone is asked about race or gender or diversity in general and they kind of go, oh, that's not really, I don't know enough about that. I let other people answer that kind of thing. And it's just like, no, 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 you have a responsibility to educate yourself. If you are one of those people who identify as white or as a man and you're therefore incredibly privileged immediately from the word go, then you have that responsibility to listen. In this podcast, I talk to successful people in the public eye about risk-taking, confounding expectations and the choices they've made which have led them to the place they are today. This time, my guest is an actor who manages to find humanity in the characters he chooses regardless of how they may present or unravel before our eyes. My guest today is one of the most versatile British actors working today on stage or screen, big or small. My guest today is James Norton. James, thank you so much for joining us this morning. I am introducing you while you're desperately trying to get your coffee, <laughs> coffee. which is just isn't fair at all. How awake are you this early in the morning? I'm feeling good. Five o'clock this morning was a little ropey, but um, three coffees in. And you, uh, <laughs> your charismatic presence, I'm, I'm awake, I'm here. Well, you're charming me to begin with already. <laughs> and I hate the fact that it's working because I can see just how good you are at charming everyone. It, and you seem to have this amazing ability to, without trying, just win people over in quite a genuine and, and natural, normal, beautiful way. It's a nice way of saying I'm like a people pleaser, just desperate for affirmation. <laughs> well, no. What I will no, no, say is true, that you are a people person. Yeah, it's true. I think most actors seem to thrive in that place of collaboration and, and you know, the film set is just mad, mad, constant people. Yeah, I think I'm definitely from the more extrovert what is it I'm an introverted extrovert they exist they exist so I, I don't I hate giving speeches I yeah. hate the kind of impromptu would you like to say a few words but I do love a party so how did acting find you and are you from a performance family no not at all it did find me actually I didn't I sort of it took me by surprise it took my whole family by surprise um, my parents are both very normal people not show busy at all they, they both were in teaching lecturing my sister's a doctor her husband's a doctor right. but I just had the bug from really early age I loved it I loved storytelling I used to make my friends make these little plays in the bay, in the windows of my house and all they wanted to do was go outside and play football and I'd be like no I've written a play <laughs> I hated coming around to my house uh, so um, what age would you say that you started to perform in front of audiences for real? I did the school plays and, and all that. I, was, I loved it. I did lots of youth theatre from you know really young. The moment I think it all became a reality was when I was at university and this director who, um, uh, she, she, yeah, we ended up having a very close relationship and she trusted me and, and gave me this role which I would never have otherwise thought I was capable of. And then at the end of it, she was like, That's, that was really great. You should apply to drama school. And I think without her faith, I don't think I would have had that. Confidence. It's strange. I'm sure you have it when you want to be a you know, musician or presenter or an actor. Well, you know, there are 17 things which you are. But um, <laughs> it's difficult when you tell your teachers that you want to do those things, the slightly more obscure, yeah. you know, thing, because you usually get a quite condescending reaction of like, oh, you'll grow out of it, you know, to give Absolutely. it time. And actually, for a long time, I thought I was going to do something much more conventional and go into something like law or teaching or something. And then when I applied to drama school and got in, it was like, wow, there's no turning back. Understanding people's passions and where they come from is something that really drives me and fascinates me when I meet people properly for the first time. And your relationship with drama didn't just begin as the performer. It began, well, there was a point when you were actually teaching 
Well, you mean drama. Yeah. I went, I, did, I set up a, a theatre company called Backpacked and we toured schools in uh, Nepal and North India, which was one of my proudest moments, actually. I, don't, I rarely talk about that. It was so long ago, but we got some funding from my university and um, I went, spent a long time in um, South Asia when I was about 18 on my own, just completely mad, crazy man running around with a backpack and no mobile phone. Did you have dungarees and a bandana? And Aladdin pants and Sardu beads. I had a, a, a whole <laughs> tragedy, awful agony. <laughs> But then jump a few years later, I actually made, put it to good use and used the contacts, friends I made to set this tour up. We toured around schools and it was amazing. I mean, taking this kind of outlet, this creativity to these kids who had never even, they didn't even know what theatre was. I mean, yeah. they had their, you know, in their respective villages and storytelling and, and tradition or sort of passing down of, of folklore. And, but the idea of actual kind of proscenium arch and, and actors standing on stage, totally, it was totally new to them. And it was so gratifying. We'd turn up in the morning and these kids would look at us and go, who the hell are you? You know, we I made sure we all wore yellow t-shirts and black trousers and we were these like very energetic kind of loud voices and by the end of the day we had them just so engaged telling us stories about their lives mm. through theatre you know and often very honest and quite traumatic stories about you know right. fathers who had been abusive or whatever it was you know it was, they, it was amazing to see you give kids an outlet you know a creative outlet and within 12 hours they were giving us their souls. It's yeah. kind of amazing. Yeah. See, it's, it's lovely having this conversation literally where we are right now. We're in King's Cross, a very different King's Cross to the one that I grew up in. Mm -hmm. And my relationship with drama started about a mile and a half in that direction. Nice. And much like yourself, you know, I found myself in this drama group surrounded by kids who had never really had an outlet to express themselves before. And in that moment, things that were deep and dark within us were coming out. Yeah. And when you've got a group of kids and you're saying to them, say something that means something to you or something that matters through drama, sometimes the most uncomfortable and difficult things come up. That specific experience of that particular tour we did was really humbling. And as you say, it kind of distilled the craft, whatever you want to call it, down to its purest form to see them very honestly and organically react to the opportunity to tell a story about their own lives. And as you say, often without prompting, go into some very personal places. It was a really seminal moment for me. You see the power of theatre, you see the power of creativity. Did it change your understanding about what performing can actually be and what you can and should draw from as an actor? I think so. I guess your understanding, your relationship with your craft is a huge, movable feast that's constantly evolving. And that, to see kids be that brave in front of their peers you know, I remember when I was that, that age and I was pretty like stifled I was you know I had a weird time at school anyway and actually did lean into theatre but it was always other people's stories it wasn't my own but it was definitely a sort of place of solace for me but to see those kids be that brave and, and the immediacy with which their reaction to yeah I think I, I would hope that that has given me the same courage and emboldened me to dig deep. Actually, when drama school came along, it's a very, very similar experience, but that's much more kind of the teachers coaxing it out of you, but it's all about just breaking down barriers and being as honest as you can, yeah. finding your sort of the deep, dark, personal self which exists somewhere. A friend of mine said something recently that, that popped into my head this morning on my way down, knowing that I was coming to talk to you. Uh, she had a, a hit song a few years ago and we all went to go and see her perform one night and then uh, before she <laughs> introduced the song she went this is the song that I'm going to sing for the rest of my life Wow! and um, as I was coming down here today I sort of thought about you and your career and there is a role that you will 1 million percent be talking about for the rest of your career and it's the first thing that I saw you in that I became deeply obsessed by and fascinated by in terms of the performance and that was Tommy in, in Happy Valley and I went back 
and watched one scene in particular over and over again. And I'm not blowing smoke here. I genuinely was fascinated by what you were doing in that scene on the boat uh, with yeah. your son yeah. in Happy Valley. Before we get into the intricacies of that scene and that role, that project for you, I imagine, is something that you've had to talk about for years. Happily. And why is it something that you speak about happily, considering that the part that you played is on the other end of the spectrum in terms of emotion and what it stirred up in the audience? Yeah, there's a lot of good questions that my experience of playing Tommy Lee Royce, it completely encapsulated why I'm in this business because it took me into a world and a headspace and a framework of experience just totally alien to mine. And I learned so much from him and a lot of what I learned was horrible and traumatic and distressing yet there was also as is always the case with everyone you know all parts of humanity there was hope there but as far as an emotional journey and a journey of empathy that was one of the hardest and therefore one of the most rewarding I've ever been on I always say that actors have a responsibility to fall in love with the people they're playing and it's true and you and sometimes it happens and you just can't help it happen sometimes it's a real struggle and you have to find the heart and soul of that person and Tony Royce is a monster but the journey which Sally, the writer, allowed me to go on was so rewarding because she allowed the audience and me as the actor to sort of think of him as this one-dimensional... I judged him. I thought he was this psychopath. And actually by the episode, which you're talking about, episode five and six, suddenly you realise this boy, this man, has carrying so much trauma and was you know, abused in a horrible way as a, as a very young child. And the moment on the boat the only person he's ever loved is his son. Suddenly this, this boy arrives in his life and he's like feeling these emotions and he's thinking, my God, this is, I've never felt this before. It's, it's a flavor of love. And the most loving thing he can think about doing is taking his son away from this world because he thinks the world is so horrendous. And when you think about that, that, like how can your heart not go out to that young man? And there are people like that, you know, there are many, many people so traumatized. They think the world is so inherently hostile that they want to take themselves and other people out of it. And if that's not a cry for empathy and sympathy then, and compassion, then I don't know what is. So yeah, it did amazing things for my career. It definitely opened doors. It allowed me to prove to producers and casting directors like that, you know, I want to go on that transformative journey. It's often kind of hard to do because people pigeonhole you. Inevitably, they put you in a box and they think, oh, great, he's that. He can play that role for the rest of his life. And to play Tommy, to be entrusted with that opportunity was just a game changer for me professionally. But emotionally and just for life it was just nuts <laughs> so if you see tommy as a role that put you in a completely different place creatively and professionally how have you been pigeonholed prior to tommy and post as well yeah yeah i mean it, it happens all the time i understand why as well i mean i'm starting to do a little, little bit of production producing myself and and it makes life very easy if the role walks through the door when you know, you're auditioning you know what i mean it, it, it there's no worry about whether they're going to find it if there's an accent involved, they don't have to bring in dialect coaches. Mm. Do you know what I mean? It's just it's just done, dusted, great. And for them, they don't prioritise the journey of the actor. They don't really care if the actor's learning every role they do and breaking new boundaries. They just want their production to be the best it possibly can be. And so I get it. I understand why people are brought back into you know familiar territories. I sound, the way I sound, I was privately educated and I was incredibly lucky to have that opportunity and it got me to a great uni and I look English, <laughs> floppy hair. I'm never allowed to cut my hair. Apart from Tommy, I was able to shave my hair, which I was so happy about. And have a head tattoo as and well. And have a tattoo. Honestly, it was so good. I went, I, I left, after the first, second series, I went home to my mum and dad and on the train with the tattoos in. And these guys, these, these like rude boys from Leeds came over to me and they were like, 
like, that's some sick ink. Like, they were that in my, and I couldn't speak because obviously if I did, I'd be like, oh, thank you so much. So I just sat there in silence and let them walk yes. past. I've never felt better. I've never felt... Um, what was your family's reaction when you walked in with a shaved head and head tattoos? Well, obviously, I was hoping that my mum... London's who, done this to him. <laughs> this is what London yeah, does. Yeah. You're staying home. Um, no, I think, they, I think they were in on it by then. Um, outside of that scene on the boat, I was fascinated by how not only you were able to humanise a monster, as you describe him, but also I was able to, as a fan of what it is you do, like you after seeing you literally beat up Sarah Lancashire on screen. And for somebody like yourself, how are you able to commit to a scene like that when you are behaving in such a vile way? What is your process when it comes to doing that on screen, knowing that millions of people might attach you to that forever? Yeah, it's a good question. The actual process of performing those scenes is inevitably distressing. If I was to say that it was in some way, I mean, it would just, yeah, it's horrible. I mean, you have incredible people around you, stunt coordinators and stunt actors, and Sarah did a lot of her own stunt work. And, you know, what was kind of reassuring was that when I was asked to grab the head of the lady who was playing, um, she's called B, she's an amazing uh, stunt actress, smash her head against what well, I couldn't do it I was like and the stunt coordinator and she kept saying listen this is my job you're gonna have you're gonna have to do this and I'm like I just can't do it I can't do it so you know gra- gratifying reassuringly there's something triggering me which couldn't be clicked and I uh, you know and spitting in Anne's face Charlie Murphy's amazing wow. actress it was horrible yeah the violence is, is just inherently horrible but the playing of him I spent a long time a lot of Janice was like, oh is it really hard to kind of shake him at the end of the day and I was like well not really I don't I'm not really one of those actors who kind of carry it into my personal life I'd have a beer at the end of the day and move on what was weird was that it was actually like really exciting because I spend we spend most of us spend our lives worrying about what people think and then to be in someone's head who just doesn't give a fuck it was so exciting yeah, and yeah. really annoyingly rewarding and, and, and sort of enthralling I guess I, I don't know it's, I have to be delicate because I don't I mean I, Tommy Lee Royce is a horrible monster he's a psychopath but the ability to not care about what anyone thinks about you I think it's because I spend my life worrying <laughs> so that in a sense was the other kind of flip side of it Yeah, everyone was like it must be really traumatic and actually it was quite the opposite quite exciting yeah I, I've mentioned this on the show before this idea of the why yeah. Starting with why. Uh, I love the book by Simon Sinek, uh, Start With Why. Oh, I haven't, and, I haven't uh, read it. Okay. You must read okay. it. It's fantastic. And it, it sort of gets into it in a business capacity, but also in a, a personal one. Finding the why, I imagine, for the behavior of someone like Tommy is imperative in playing him with any amount of truth. Yes, that's exactly it. The why, I guess, is is that empathy, you know, understanding their reaction to the world, understanding their choices. Luckily, I had an incredible group of people around me. Sally Wainwright's a genius. There's no better writer out there, I don't think. The BBC put me in touch with criminal psychologists. I went into the Priory. I sat with a criminal psychologist and we went through the whole role and he told me about what this man would be feeling. And, you know, he, he talked about dog-eat-dog world. And if you imagine everyone and everything is going to, figuratively hit you in the face (laughs) then you've got to hit first and that's what Tommy's life is like and so to find empathy with someone who causes so much pain is a difficult thing and but as I say, it's what is also the most rewarding because you learn the most and the, the further you go from one's, your own head and the, the more obscure the why, the more you travel, the, the more you learn and um, 
It's kind of why I do it, you know. So I'm currently working with someone who's, I'd say, in the similar realm of annoyingly handsome as you. And you know him well, you should do anyway, uh, Tom Brittany. He's yeah. one of the nicest men out there. <laughs> yeah, and uh, yeah. we're working together at the moment, but you've spent a lot more time with him working on a very different project to Happy <laughs> yeah. Valley, yeah. Uh, which is, of course, uh, Grantchester. So I don't know. I'm really interested not only in that role <laughs> that you perform on that show and also how you're able to be around such a handsome man. But outside of that, how you go from Tommy to what you're doing on Grantchester? The weird thing about that was that they were almost concurrent. We shot Happy Valley and then shot Grantchester and then went back into Happy Valley. And, and, the, and the Happy Valley was airing whilst we were filming Grantchester. Wow. And, uh, <laughs> and slowly, like, the, the crew, as they watched every episode, got more and more kind of wary of me. By the end, I was, like, getting these horrible portions of food and, you know, like, so you, <laughs> spitting in my tea. And stuff. You were literally a killer and a vicar pretty much at the same time. Yeah. By day, I was filming Grantchester, and by night, we were, Sunday nights, we were, Happy Valley was airing. Which kind of was brilliant, because, as I say, it, was, it just allowed me to hopefully prove to people that that's what you want to do. You want to go on those extreme journeys and play the people who are at the fringes of humanity, but hopefully at polar, you know, opposites. How is it to be around someone as handsome as Tom Brittany? <laughs> I mean, it's a struggle. I'm struggling right now in the room with you, Reggie. That's, but... see, that's the thing, you did it again, and it's not working. It's not going to work on me, all right? <laughs> yeah, Tom's a great guy. The thing that seems consistent in your work is this ability to find contemporary themes in different periods. So something like Grantchester, for instance, is set in the 50s. Yeah. Yeah. And there are moments in it where what is actually being said in the subtext of a scene very much speaks to what's happening today. Mm -hmm. Is that a choice or is that just a massive coincidence? I guess generally the stuff I gravitate to and the, the writing I are drawn to has both that level of entertainment and escapism, but also social conscience. I was slightly wary of saying that I want my work to make a difference, but of course I do. And I want, oh. I want, I want to be able to, I want to be a catalyst for a conversation. If I can do that through the work, if I can find projects like Grantchester or Happy Valley or, or others, which, you know, recently this one, Mr. Jones or whatever, which have both, then great. You know, I'd much rather that than have to sort of tweet my opinions which has a massive backlash well, usually. I, I'm really glad that you've said that because I was going to accuse you of being far too humble because there is a consistent theme of work that you've done that speaks to some sort of issue regardless of when it's set you know Bell in 2013 you know it is a period piece but at the same time speaking to massively modern yeah. pertinent themes pertaining to race and the yeah. handling of it by Amara Santi, the director, and obviously the incredible Gugu in the film, are, you know, it requires a deft touch. Mm -hmm. And for somebody like yourself, choosing to put yourself in something that, if delivered incorrectly or delivered without any sensitivity, could be horrible to watch. Yes. I think you have to just trust the people, the, the filmmakers, the storytellers, the writers. I mean, Amma was someone who, she needed to tell that story. And Gugu as well. I think, someone asked me recently, have I made an active choice of, of working with lots of female filmmakers recently? And it's like, well, not really, no. Like, you, you gravitate towards the work which matters and the stories which you want to tell. And and the fact that they have they've been predominantly women recently is... Wonderful, wonderful, but they are rightfully there. They're rightfully telling those stories. And Amma was someone who 
I wanted to work with her. I wanted to tell that story. I wanted to work with Gugu. And the fact that it had this incredible message and it was this catalyst for an incredibly important conversation. Mm. It was a true story. I mean, it's unbelievable that yeah. that actually happened. It was deeply moving. I remember reading that script and just like, having to put it down. And, and for those that haven't seen it, could you sort of just uh, explain why Bell was so important and what the story actually is? Yeah, I mean, God, it's a long time ago. It's yeah. about a young girl who is the daughter of a young English captain in the army and a black mother. I think she was a slave, and they had a, they fell in love when he was with the army wherever he, wherever he was, and he decided to bring home his child. Her mother died, and he brought her up as a member of the sort of aristocracy. She lived in Kenwood House, the real Kenwood in Hampstead, which is, again, crazy to think it was so close. You know, in those days when there were people of colour in London, but often they were a curiosity, she was suddenly this incredibly powerful woman with a staff and with authority, and, and, and I think society didn't know really how to treat her. She didn't know how to uh, present herself. She would be allowed to entertain guests, but not allowed to eat with them and all this kind of... You know, it was a crazy uh, true story which happened. So... It, that was a perfect example of a film which it wasn't proselytizing is that the word it wasn't you know it wasn't sort of giving us any answers mm. but it was asking questions and i think that's the wonderful power of film is that we can throw up the questions we can be that catalyst we can write the stories which will then go into the pub after the film and people will be chewing over for yeah. for days after without necessarily bashing people around the head and with a kind of you know ethical yes stick what, <laughs> whatever the word do you know what i mean that, that was yeah it's, it's, it's important stuff because it sort of leads me to, uh, and quite nicely onto, you know, this idea of female voices in film. Because Amma is a director that you've worked with, and obviously more recently Greta Gerwig with, mm. uh, with Little Women. It's also connected to this diversity conversation because as a man of colour, one of my frustrations with the conversation about diversity is that we almost always lean into it being about race. Yes. And not just about diversity of perspective, or gender mm -hmm. and to work with someone like Greta on Little Women and to have this incredible cast of young women who will all clearly just looking at the work that they've done up until this point go on to be huge yeah. and do incredible things that diversity conversation must be surely in the front of your mind yeah, it should be in the front of everyone's mind right now. And if it's not, especially if you're in our industry, it does annoy me and upset me when you read interviews and someone is asked about race or gender or, or perspective, as you say, and diversity in general, and they kind of go, oh, well, it's not really, I don't know enough about that. I let other people answer that kind of thing. And it's just like, no, 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 you have a responsibility to educate yourself. Yes. Um, and if you are one of those people who identify as white or as a man, and you're therefore incredibly privileged immediately from the word go, then you have that responsibility to listen. Doing Little Women was so extraordinary for me is because I was able, especially because my role basically didn't say anything, <laughs> but I was able to stand on that set and bear witness to some incredible female filmmakers. Greta, Saoirse Ronan is one of the best actresses I will ever work with. Meryl Streep, for God's sake, Laura Dern. You know what I mean? Like these people are just, Amy, Amy Pascal, who produced it. I had talked about it with my girlfriend a lot and we had this conversation last night, actually. I mean, we were talking about Joaquin Phoenix's speech and how, you know, the, the people responsible for the framework of prejudice, it's on us to dismantle it. I yeah. thought that was incredibly powerful. Yeah. And I thought there was a moment in that speech where we were both watching, like, oh, is this going to go okay? Could have gone the wrong way. Could have gone the wrong way. Is, yeah. it his, is it his right to say this? I don't know. But actually, yes, it is, because there is only so much you can listen and educate yourself. You can read every book. You, you can, you know, go to every 
play by Jeremy O'Harris. You can read all the newspapers, uh, the journalists and everyone's opinion. But at the end of the day, I think we have to be more active. And, you know, we, I think Whacking Things' speech was brilliant in that yeah. regard, I thought. But I guess the question I'm always asking myself is, how do I do more? And yeah. does one insist on fully representational staff on a yeah. film set? Um, well, you're the first actor that I've spoken to since hearing that speech. Yeah. And it was an incredible speech because of the position that he put himself in. Doubling down on this idea of empathy is great, understanding yeah. is important, but action is the most important thing. Yes, yes. I'm interested what your opinion on that speech was, yeah. because I've heard lots of white actors, people who <laughs> identify as white, all going, oh, what an amazing thing yeah. and how extraordinary. But I haven't really heard or asked someone of a person of colour actually yeah. what their opinion was. I mean, uh, do you know what? I had a long conversation about it with a few friends, and I think that it was somebody using their platform for the first time in a long time the right way. Yeah. It was about, look, I've got myself to an incredibly privileged position and I'm not using it in, in the, the best way. way. Yeah. And we all as a community within the arts can affect change regardless of whether the change affects us directly or not. And that for me was the message that I think struck a chord with so many people. I see it as being quite galvanizing for a lot of people. What happens as a result is now left for all of us to see. Yes, we need more Whacking Phoenixes out there. Well, you've worked with some incredible people and you've done some fantastic work yourself. But the difficult thing, I imagine, for a, a character or for an actor like yourself, who is, whether we want to frame it, well, however we want to frame it, you present as the leading man. Oh, I thought you were about to use the word posh. No, not <laughs> at all. No, 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 not at all. Oh, right. Yeah, uh, yeah, you yeah. present as the leading man, yeah. but you choose roles that put you in a place that are interesting and challenging and different every single time. Yeah. How does one do that? And how are you able to maintain that through the rest of your career? You just have to find those stories which you gravitate towards and hopefully people will give you the the, the trust and the, you know, the opportunity to do it. I mean, yeah, it's funny. I don't really identify as that. You don't really think of yourself as kind of the, the leading man, the like matinee idol thing. And when you do play them, I think you realise that often they are the least interesting role. I mean, <laughs> you know, who wants to play Cinderella when you can play one of the Ugly Sisters? You know what I mean? I think it's it certainly opens doors, gets you into a conversation if, if you do a, a role where you're kind of the dashing young lead. But as soon as you start to be identified as exclusively that, then you limit yourself and what you need to do is take risks and play something completely different in order to keep moving, keep growing, keep learning, rather than, I don't want to play the same role over and over again, I'll stop learning. I, I certainly... That, that whole thing, that, that hot vicar thing which came off back at Granchester was very weird for me because I was always the like really awkward kid at school I was like yeah I was never the cool kid I was at the bottom of the pile and I think it's so ingrained in me that sense of the gauche gangly teenager I'm just <laughs> never going to get rid of it yeah. so whenever anyone does put me in that thing I just, there's a loud part in my head going come on it's like <laughs> you know I mean? the one role that keeps coming up whenever your name is mentioned I imagine to either be an annoyance or a huge compliment and given your reaction, I have a feeling I know how you feel. <laughs> is the B word on? Is it frustration or is it is it a compliment? It's not. I'd say it's not a frustration. It's definitely a compliment. It's a bizarre compliment. I mean, again, going back to what we were saying earlier, like no one. I, don't, I can't really think of any like fourteen-year-old kids who like identify as James Bond. You know, you we all come. <laughs> the, the, we all come from that place of like 
weird gang, you know, formative sort of trying to work out who we are. And I think I still am. So there is no truth. I mean, it is all kind of total speculation. I don't know. I don't know where the journalists get these snippets of news. It's all speculation. And it's fun and bemusing and complete nonsense. I'm going to let you off and let you go with a final question. And that is through everything that we've spoken about, clearly you have experienced so many different things which have affected the choices that you've made on screen. I'm fascinated to understand how you define the road that that you've travelled and what has brought you to this point. Wow, the road less travelled. I mean, I oof, that's, I started with a, a really good therapist recently and I'm realising how poignant my school days were. I did, there was an article where I, uh, I said I had a, an hour and a half of chat and then I said one thing about being bullied at school and of course that was the headline. And that's really sloppy journalism, really annoying. But and I would not want that to be my headline. I do not want to be the actor who was bullied. Similarly, I'm a diabetic. I do not want to be the diabetic actor. Yeah. I'm type 1 diabetic. I live with that, but it's completely fine. So that's obviously a significant part of what makes me me, but doesn't define me. And my school days, similarly, like they were big big years and having been at the bottom of the pile I will hopefully make sure that everyone is listened to I w- would hate to think that someone on a film set I was on and they were being forgotten which is what happened to me at school a little bit but yeah I mean I'm a product of all of it my mom, my family I'm so close to my family and that's just so so important to me and um so I think I'm probably in many ways totally normal and conventional and then I've got my things which make me me but I would rather you ask me that question in 40 years time and then I'll be able to give you a proper answer right okay. now I'm I'm still very much working out. <laughs> well the lovely thing about your answer was you didn't do a Wayne Rooney and start you know giving your autobiography answer <laughs> in your mid-20s. Dave. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, what you did just do was what I think anybody would hope and that is identify what's brought you to this point but also recognise that there is so much more mm-hmm. to come and um, as a fan of what you do I'm looking forward to watching it. Thanks man it's been a real pleasure yeah likewise thank you so much for joining me thank you you've been listening to the road less traveled brought to you by bell staff 